If you would please open your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10. <laughs> I'm, I'm very glad that uh, Colossians is in the Bible. Ryan was telling me when he came in this morning that uh, he discovered this, this Bible that he ordered. Um, just uh, kind of a, a brand new um, publication with different study notes. And uh, he went to read Colossians in preparation for this morning. And it wasn't there. <laughs> he said, I know where Colossians is. And he found that there were a few. So there was a just a misprint, uh, printer error, whatever. Um, anyway, needs to get reimbursed because Colossians needs to be there. <clears throat> Today we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, again, verses 6 to 10. Let's uh, read the word of the Lord together and then go to him in prayer. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Father, as we are in your presence with your word open before us, I pray that by your spirit, your word would get right into us, into our hearts and deep into our hearts. And I pray that our response to you, Father, would be worship and praise, um, a firmer faith, a, a renewed life in your way. Just accomplish, Father, in us exactly what you command. I pray, Father, that you would do the work and our lives would uh, happily submit. We thank you for your great love and your ability and your eagerness to answer our prayer. We, we come to you with confidence today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you saw this story this past week, but on Friday I read about these two women who had set sail from Honolulu, Hawaii, headed for Tahiti in the South Pacific, and early on in their journey encountered a storm that... Um, they, they experienced a flood under their ship which crippled their engine and um, did a lot of damage to their mast. And so basically they were adrift at sea for five months. For 98 consecutive days they sent out a, a distress signal which was never picked up. They were so far away from, I guess, anything that could pick it up. Um, thankfully, they had a year's supply of food and they had a, a water purifier, but they even saw boats and they, they sent up the, you know, the signal flares and these boats never saw them. And so finally, they ended up 900 miles off of the coast of Japan when a boat spotted them, contacted the U.S. Coast Guard and the USS Ashland picked them up. So they're 900 miles off the coast of Japan thousands of miles from their destination. Uh, they even, they said they learned a lot about the ocean and um, 
and they had to do something to, to pass the time. Um, and they were very thankful for the, the strength of the hull of their boat because uh, they experienced two consecutive days of tiger sharks um, pounding the hull of their boat. They believed that it was the, you know, the parents teaching the young sharks how to attack or something. Um, but anyway, they, they survived intact after five months adrift on the Pacific Ocean. I want to ask you a question in light of that. Are you still headed to the destination that you were set upon when you first believed in Jesus Christ? Are you still going the same way to the same destination as when you first believed? By the time these women were picked up, no one would have guessed what their original destination had been because they were so far off course. And it's the same way with many, many people who once professed faith in Jesus. At this point in their lives, looking at their current course, you would never guess that at one time their aim had been Jesus. So far have they drifted. Do you know why so many people go off course who once professed faith in Christ? It's because, one reason, is because while so many people are happy to have Jesus as Savior, far less are happy to have Him as Lord. They wanted on the gospel ship, they wanted to reach that promised land destination as long as they could steer. They were happy to have a Savior, but not a Lord. You know what Philippians chapter 2 says? Because of Jesus' obedience to the suffering of death, God has exalted Him to the highest place and given Him that name which is above every name. What name is that? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name above every name. He is Lord. It means that He is the head, the ruler of all. He has an exclusive role. No challenger, no rival can have this name. It means that if you are in Him and He is in you, you are filled And there's no room for any addition to Jesus. There's no room for any supplement to Jesus. Christ is all. He is Lord. And Paul says, if you received Christ Jesus the Lord, you must continue in Him. Just as you received Him. Let's uh, quickly um, summarize the, the few verses before this. Remember, in verses 1-5, to Paul said he was struggling on the behalf of believers. And his struggle was for believers to, together, in heart, know Christ so well, with such deep conviction, that they would be beyond the reach of all deception. And so... Paul looked at the Colossians and he considered the report that Epaphras had given him about them. And he knew that even as false teachers were beginning to encroach upon the Colossian church, Paul still had joy in them because their faith was firm in Jesus. 
They were continuing stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel. They were on course. And so now what Paul says to them is, stay on course. He exhorts them and the word of God exhorts you and me. Now stay on course. Look at verse 6 again. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Paul reminds the Colossians about how they first received Christ Jesus the Lord. For those of you who do have faith in Jesus, do you remember how you first received him? It's very easy, I think, to forget, especially when we consider the lordship of Jesus Christ. I think that our experience, however, is, um, is a common one. Even though conversions may, may look very different one from the other, you know, how Peter came to Jesus was much different than how Paul came to Jesus, and we could all have our individual unique stories of conversion. Yet, in the essence of it, it's all the same. And how we received him is the same. So let's look back in chapter 1 and look at how, again, how the Colossians received Christ. Um, Paul, you, re- you recall, was under house arrest in Rome, chained to a Roman guard when his friend Epaphras came to him, received permission to see the Roman prisoner, and told Paul that the Colossians too had received the word of truth. They had heard the gospel and received it as the word of truth. Paul says in verse, let's see, he talks about the word of truth in chapter, uh, in verse five. In verse six, he says they understood the grace of God and truth. And he speaks about how the hope of the gospel latched onto them and they believed. The gospel bore the fruits of faith and love in them. So that is, when they heard of the Lord, it wasn't bad news. It wasn't bad news. What Lord, what individual or empire or whatever that claims lordship has done what Jesus has done, has done what Jesus the Lord has done. Christ Jesus the Lord waged war on sin, not sinners, and laid down his life for sinners to reconcile sinners to himself and present those sinners to himself blameless, giving them full inheritance in his kingdom. What Lord has done this? I mean, when people hear of a Lord, a a King, a ruler. The natural fear is condemnation. But Christ doesn't bring the word of condemnation, but justification. And not an announcement of war, but of peace. This is the good news that God put sin to death and death to death, not sinners to death, in the death of His innocent Son. So that Jesus is victorious Lord is in fact the best news that could ever be heard. That, that's what people don't understand. What I was speaking of earlier, they want a Savior but not a Lord. 
But they don't understand that the Lordship of Jesus, His victory and His reign, that He loved me, the Lord loved me, and gave Himself for me to free me and to have me. This is the best news that human ears have ever heard. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's how you stay on course. That's how you continue to walk in Him. You remember the goodness of the good news. So he says in verse 7, As you received Him, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We've been talking for a little while about perseverance, about growing, persevering, continuing, stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel, not being shifted, all of those words that Paul has used. And that's what we're continuing to talk about today. Walking in Him, continuing, not shifting, not being deceived by any false teaching whatsoever. Now what Paul urges here in verse 7 is what he prayed for in chapter 1. In, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, actually go back to that. Look back at verses 9 and 10 and really glance over down through verse 12 of chapter 1. What he is urging here in 2 verse 7, he prayed for earlier. You see, he prayed that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In verse 9, And this was so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then verses 10 through 12, Paul describes what that looks like with, if you remember, four participles. He speaks of bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened and giving thanks. So bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened and giving thanks. And what Paul was praying for there in chapter 1 is what he urges in chapter 2. Let's make the connections. Now you've glanced over it in chapter 1. Look back at chapter 2. Verse 7. So the first participle there is a metaphor again. It's an agricultural metaphor. He spoke of bearing fruit in chapter 1. That connects to being rooted in chapter 2. Increasing from the prior chapter connects to being built up. And these two are also all participles. That is, you can translate them I-N-G at the end. That suffix. And then third, being strengthened connects to being established. And finally, obviously, giving thanks in chapter 1, his prayer there connects to what he urges here, abounding in thanksgiving. So he uses these word pictures, these very picturesque uh, picturesque participles to talk about our growth in the Lord and how we continue to walk in Him. Let's go over these a little bit more slowly. Again, he says, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith. The first word, again, is an agricultural agricultural word. Being rooted. We were talking about this this morning in Sunday school. That our faith must grow. We must go deep into Jesus Christ. Deep into Christ. Remember these words from the Old Testament. Jeremiah 17. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Blessed is the man whose roots go deep into Christ. The next word is architectural. Being built up. It's a construction metaphor. Being built up, and I'm just going to handle these next two together. Being built up and established in the faith. Remember these words from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. We need to go deep into Christ and be built up in Christ, established firm in Christ, having that solid foundation. Maybe it would help if um, I just shared a little bit with you about my own life and my experience in, in growing in the Lord and, and getting those roots down deeper and, and being built up in Him. When I was a little boy in Sunday school, it was as far north as you could go at the time. It was as far north as you could go by road in the province of Ontario. And um, little, it was a little mining town with, you know, we have bears here. Lots, there were lots of bears, wolves, all that kind of stuff. It was a rough, kind of a rough place to live. And, um, but I remember in Sunday school hearing the gospel. I don't know if I'd heard it before, but just a little boy, um, even, even Marshall's age, actually younger than Marshall, I remember hearing the gospel. And I remember paying attention to it. I, and I just understood the bare bones of the message. But it was a simple message, and it really is. It's something that a child can understand. I knew that I was a sinner and Jesus wasn't. I knew that unless I was saved, delivered, I would die for this sin. But Jesus died for me in my place and rose. And if my, if I put my trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, I would be saved. I understood that. And I received that. So, as I grew up, I thought in, like I said, I just knew the bare bones of, you know, any biblical teaching. So I, I just thought that all, um, all Christian adults were perfect. I even thought my parents were perfect. Even when they made obvious mistakes, I just thought that they could do no wrong. And I thought that preachers were super perfect. Um, So now, here I am, a preacher and a parent myself, and I, I know the human condition better than ever and sin nature, and I know my own heart, obviously, much better than I did when I was a little boy, and I know, and I think my children would tell you, how grossly imperfect I am. Actually, they probably wouldn't tell you that, but I'll tell you that. 
I know much better than ever. I know my sin. But I also know this. I know I've been captivated by the glory of the gospel. I know that I have never been more justified than I am now. And I could never be more justified in Christ, righteous in the sight of God, than I am right now. Because I am in Christ. And in fact, this is the glory of the gospel that captivates me. The Bible speaks of those who have gone before us into the presence of Jesus. It calls them the spirits of the righteous made perfect in the book of Hebrews. There is no spirit in heaven made perfect who is more justified now than I was when I first believed. That's the fullness and the completion of the gospel. That's the glory of the gospel. I know the goodness of this good news better than ever. So nothing's going to move me. So many may go away from the faith, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. With Peter, those who know the goodness of the good news, we, we say with Peter, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We are not going anywhere. That's how you continue to walk in Him. You continue to walk in Him just as you received Him. You remember the goodness of the good news. Remember how good it is. That's what drives roots down deeper and builds structures on Christ stronger. And the last thing that Paul says is it also it makes thanksgiving abound. Are you thankful? Nobody should be more thankful than the Christian. Thanksgiving is an excellent test for how well you understand the goodness of the good news. How thankful your heart is. Why should we be more thankful than anybody? Think about this. Have you ever craved since you believed in Jesus, has there been a time in your life where you absolutely craved sin so that there was going to be nothing that was going to hold you back from the thing that was tempting you? I have no doubts this is true. You you pushed the gospel promises aside and the truths please aside and you ran after the sin until you had the thing. You dove headlong into the thing. You forsook the fountain of living waters for the dry dust of death. And you drank it in. And you you came up from that with a sigh of contentment like you had just satisfied the deepest longing of your soul. You've done that since you were a believer. You have. We all have. But this is the goodness of the Gospel. As hard as you have run after sin, it cannot compare with the steadfast love of the Lord pursuing after you every day of your life. That's what David says and he praises God for at the end of Psalm 23 when he says, Surely 
goodness and mercy. And that word is steadfast love is after me. He says following me, but the word is so strong it means it's after me, pursuing me. It won't let me go all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the goodness of the good news. No matter how hard you have chased after sin, the steadfast love of the Lord is chasing you and it is holding you and it will not let you go. And that is why more than anybody else, Christians should be the most thankful and happy people on the planet. And I'm not talking about, as I've said before, chipper with a smile plastered on your face. I'm talking about even in the deepest grief that we have, we are happy in the Lord because His love is holding on to us. You see, the thankless heart caves to sin and to deception and to the world every day. The thankless heart caves every day. But the thankful heart won't be moved. Ever. Verse 8, Paul says next, he begins a new paragraph, but I thought it would be good for us to to get into it already because it fits so well with what he has already said. He says, so, basically, you could throw that in there, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. If Christ is so good, don't let anything take you away from Him. Any system of knowledge or or set of truth claims that is not in accord with Christ makes slaves of its believers. People think that if they come to Jesus, they won't be free anymore. But the world doesn't give you freedom. It holds you captive unto death. And what I'm saying about any set of truth claims or system of knowledge that if it's not in accord with Christ, it makes slaves of people. That's even true if that set of truth claims goes by the name Christian and draws from the Bible. It, it may have the sound of truth in its teaching and, and the form of godliness in its practice. But if it's not in accord with Christ, it's powered by hell. And this is why we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, which two days from now started 500 years ago when Martin Luther nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, those 95 theses in protest of the corruption and the false doctrine that was in the Roman Catholic Church. Why do we celebrate this? because the Roman Catholic faith is built on human tradition. Like Paul says, it's built on human tradition and it is not in accord with Christ. It teaches justification by faith and by works. It teaches with the worship of Jesus, the worship of saints and Mary. And it puts tradition, human tradition, on par with the authority of God's Word. And so one of the major thrusts of the Reformation was this little Latin phrase, solus Christus, Christ alone. 
Christ alone. In Him alone. Paul is insisting we find all that we need. In Him, we cannot have any more. As 1 Corinthians says, Jesus is wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is our faith, our hope, and our love. He is our life, Christ alone. If we would add to Him then, if we would add to this One who is Lord, we wouldn't be freer, we'd be enslaved. We wouldn't be more righteous, more justified. We would be condemned. If we would add to Him, try to supplement to Jesus something else, we wouldn't be more alive. We would be dead. We wouldn't be richer. We'd be poor. We wouldn't be filled. We would, we would be bare cupboards empty spiritually. Because Christ is all. So this is, Paul says in verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Does this sound familiar as we've gone through Colossians? Because Paul said basically the same thing in chapter 1, verse 19. But now he adds, the only thing he adds essentially is this word bodily. The fullness of God dwelled in the Son from eternity. Now the fullness of God still dwells in the Son bodily. When He added in time a human nature, He did not lose any of His deity. He did not become less God. Now He is the God-man perfectly. And I know this is hard to understand what Paul is saying. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily. But God has given to us over the centuries of the history of His people a really good picture to help us understand. In the tabernacle and in the temple. You remember after they completed the construction of the tabernacle, what happened? The glory of the of God moved in. The, the glory cloud moved in and drove Moses out. And after so many centuries, when at last the people of God built a, a temple, a majestic temple, the glory cloud moved in again. And what happened? All the people inside, all of the ministers of God were forced out. All the glory of God is found in Jesus. The, the meaning of that, the meaning of the temple, its significance is fulfilled in Jesus because all the glory of God, the fullness of the deity, dwells in Him bodily. And as that glory in the past drove everything else out, that's how it is with Jesus. You can't add to Him. You can't supplement anything. You can't push, you can't bring anything else in. Because all the fullness dwells in Him and we are filled in Him. That's what He says next. Before I move on to what He says next, let me just say what Paul is saying here and what the whole Bible testifies to is 
This is where we find the glory of God now. This is where we meet with God now. This is where we worship Him. This is where, this is where we find all. It's in Jesus. We find it in Christ. And so Paul adds in verse 10, and you have been filled in Him, he says. This is the, this is the amazing truth of the gospel. You have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now our time is getting on. We've hit 12.01 or something. So easily now minds can wander. Give me your attention. Give the word of God your attention a little bit longer here. This is a little bit of a complicated verse. First of all, first question, we'll ask two questions. What does Paul mean when he says that you have been filled in Jesus? Sounds awesome, but kind of hard to understand. So what does he mean? And then second, why does he connect us being filled in Jesus with what he says next, Jesus being the head of all rule and authority? How do those two clauses there fit together? Well, let's answer the second question first. Why he connects us being filled in Jesus with Jesus being the head of all rule and authority. The reason for that is because of the false teaching that was being put on them. They were being told, the Colossians were being told that Jesus is not the only spiritual being in the universe. There are all of these other spiritual beings too. And if you want to get all, if you want the fullness, if you want to have the complete spirituality, then you need Jesus and you also need to tap into these spiritual powers too. And that's why Paul says, you're already filled. That is, you have all you need. And that's simply what he means. That you have been filled in him. You have all you need. And in him, you cannot have more. Because Jesus is Lord. The head of all rule and authority. He made them. And as he's going to say shortly, when he died, he conquered them. He triumphed triumphed over them. Jesus is all, and in Him we find all. So, all that we need to be justified and reconciled to God is found in Christ. All we need for life and godliness is in Christ. God has already, in Christ, perfectly qualified us, past tense. We are already qualified for the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of God's Son. What need do we have left if we have been filled in Jesus? What spiritual need do we have left if we are filled in Jesus? We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, as Paul said in Ephesians 1. It's like this. What Referencing Psalm 23 again. Remember how David starts off that famous psalm? He says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He's not saying I don't have any desires. He's saying because the Lord is my shepherd, I don't lack for anything. I don't lack for anything. And with David, we can say the exact same using Paul's words. We are filled in Christ. What do you have to offer me? World what do you have to offer me? 
you know, the false teaching systems. What do you have? What are you promising that I don't have in Christ? What goodness do I lack in Christ? I am filled in Christ. I shall not want. I lack for nothing. And knowing this, church family, it's knowing this that keeps you in Christ. Knowing the goodness of the good news of Jesus is what keeps you in Him. So you fill your head with the knowledge of it. And your, your heart gets filled with the joy of it. And your mouth gets filled with the thanksgiving of it. And nothing can move you. You stay on course in Jesus all the way to glory. Because the good news is so good, you're not going anywhere. And that's how we are kept. All the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the the gospel, the wealth that we have in the gospel. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. You've not withheld a thing. We lack for nothing. Lord, I pray that the, the goodness of the good news would, would break through and, and overcome any temptation that your people feel today. And they would know, Lord, that the world has nothing, nothing to offer us. Nothing but that dry dust of death. And I pray, Father, too, that those who have forsaken the fountain of living waters and drank from the world again, I pray that the goodness of the good news would break through and overcome their shame and would tell them, no, they are kept. They're not lost. They're kept. Their life is hidden with you in Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we receive Jesus, so then we would walk in him. Keep us. Keep every single one. Father, and if there is one here who yet resists this goodness of the good news, I pray that you would dissolve all of that resistance. And you would tell them of your great love for them, what Jesus has done for them. And I pray that they would come to him and accept Christ as their Lord and their Savior. I ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.